Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. I'm Tom Martin, and joining us from her farm near Salisbury, Wilshire, for our Agri-Food Outlook series is Manette Batters, president of the National Farmers Union of England and Wales. Her organization represents the interest of 47,000 members. Greetings, Manette. Hello. So let's begin with a little bit of background. You grew up on a farm and were discouraged from becoming a farmer yourself. You went on to catering for a time. But as they say, you can take the woman away from the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the woman. So you returned to farming a couple of decades ago, and you haven't looked back. Can you tell us about that personal connection with working the land? Well, I'll try to to sort of sum it up, really. I mean, I was brought up on the farm that I now farm on and and live on. Um, But my father was, as as you say, quite opposed to women going into, into farming. But it was definitely something that I I always wanted to come back to. Um, and so two decades ago, I, I did manage to get the chance to come back here. We don't own this farm here, which is quite common in the United Kingdom. We have a lot of tenant farmers, which are basically long-term farm business tenancies. And so I was able to negotiate a new deal with uh, my uh, landlords and that was basically about doing up uh, some cottages in return for the land that, that went with it. So that's what we started with 20 years ago. Um, very little stock on the place, um, no fences, no farm buildings, a lot of modernization needed. And I guess my background, I trained in London as a chef, um, it came in really useful because I was able to keep that business going and that very much helped us reinvest in what was needed in the farm and now we have um, a herd of pedigree herefords and, and pedigree aberdeen angus which will be a breed that's that's well known to you and we have a wedding venue as, as well so it's pretty busy here on the farm and and it's a very different farm to the one that i took on all those years ago and um it's i've never regretted it never looked back and you know I'm, Living the dream, effectively, as they say. <laughs> and, and so you bring to your role with the union, with the National Farmers Union, experience on both ends of the supply chain, from farm to, to kitchen, to your work as a chef. Exactly. A lot of experience. And I think that has come in very useful now, really, for us as as farmers, the National Farmers Union. We've very much been trying to make the case for farming policy here through the lens of, of food, through the lens of what we eat. Um, we have a lot of people here in the UK, nearly 70 million people on a, a relatively small island nation. So it's it's a very important food market. And, and my job, I guess, as the president of the National Farmers Union is to keep our farmers and growers here, the sort of number one supplier of choice to the UK market, both out of retail and out of home. So it's it's worked well, I think, for me to have a background, you know, at both ends of the, of the value chain, really. Well, what are your priorities in your work with the National Farmers Union? For us, it's, it's a very different time right now. We're obviously leaving uh, the European Union. We've left effectively, and um, much as trade with them has been important, we now are setting out on on a very different pathway for agriculture. So, 
We've just had um, legislation passed here. The last Agricultural Act was in 1947, and then in 2020, we had the, the second, effectively, Agricultural Act. So that will create a lot of change for the farmers I represent. And of course, you know, leaving the EU was all about wider trade opportunities. So the UK and the US, the UK and Australia, all the Commonwealth countries, obviously those trade discussions are ongoing. So for us, it's very much looking to the future, the role um, of farmers in delivering on climate change. I do think it's an exciting time actually to be a farmer. The, the the challenge of continually mining things effectively out of the inner earth, you know, agriculture where we can grow things in a sustainable way on the earth, not only in, in what we eat, but how we live our lives is, is a massive opportunity for farmers across the world. So I'm, I'm hopeful we host the COP here in November, the most important round of climate change discussions. President Biden coming in, obviously the US is, is back at the table. So uh, for us, it's all about future policies for trade, uh, for how we produce our food, and, and really making sure that our farmers are seen as the solution in climate change. 2020 was quite a tumultuous year, and all of that has remained with us as we begin 2021. And so let's begin with Brexit. I think you touched on a couple of these things, but uh, the United Kingdom formally withdrew from membership in the European Union uh, at the end of January 2020. And there was to have been negotiation on the terms of the future relationship between Britain and the EU, including trade and economic relations. So if you could bring us up to speed on any agreements in areas that impact agriculture and food production and marketing. So trade with the EU was always a really important thing to to get agreed and to make sure that it is tariff and quota free, which it is. Um, so that has that has happened, but the EU has always been about the single market. So what I mean by that is a comprehensive set of, of standards that are all agreed by member states and, and how we trade. So we were a part of the single market and the customs union, which allowed us to trade effectively tariff-free. This is a very different trading relationship. It is a, a sort of traditional FTA agreement. Um, there will be friction. Friction equals cost. So we do anticipate, and there is a level of friction and that level of cost. But what has been ratified here in the UK is um, being called a trade cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU. Um, I think that will be, a, to a certain extent, an iterative approach. It, it is, without doubt, going to, to change, and it's the start of a new relationship. But for us, it's 500 million consumers on our doorstep. It remains a, our key export market, 95% of our goods going into the EU. And of course, 40% of our imports coming from the EU. So it was vital for both sides, really, that we agreed that, that new trading relationship. And as I say, we are now having trade discussions with other countries, um, the US included. So it's, it's a very different road that we're on. Climate change is on everybody's mind right now. The EU Green Deal is a very ambitious plan to become the first continent in the world to become carbon neutral by 2050. Will Britain be a party to the Green Deal? And if so, what are the implications for farming and food production in the UK? Well, Britain won't be a part of the Green Deal, but it has set its own ambition and indeed legislated on that 
ambition with the Climate Change Act to achieve net zero by 2050. And for us at the National Farmers Union, we see this as a real opportunity. And indeed, we set the marker down, if you like, to achieve carbon neutral food production by 2040. Now, that was primarily because agriculture is a source of emissions, currently 10% here in the UK, but it is also a sink. So it has the unique capability that other industries don't have of being able to do something about it. So we don't believe we need to downsize livestock farming uh, to lower methane. We believe that with the right policies, we can farm smarter, smart, farm more efficiently, decrease our food production footprint, but still be producing the same amount or potentially more. So we see climate change for farming as, as a huge opportunity um, to drive forward. So that has been our focus. Uh, my focus in particular is making sure that my farmer members are not taxed in all of this. So I don't think we'll necessarily be in competition with the EU, but we share the same vision. And I know, you know, many farmers I speak to in the US, you know, they're doing a lot on climate change. And I think, you know, the, the world's consumers expect us to be able to get to a carbon neutral position. But this is, I think, the exciting thing for agriculture, that we can produce things on the earth in a sustainable way, whether that is biodegradable latex or whether that is massively reducing our, our methane. But, you know, we can do it in a way that other, other sectors, other industries can't. Well, I'm wondering that imperative to become carbon neutral often drives a lot of innovation. I'm wondering what, uh, what cool things you're seeing happening right now in farming in service to meeting that goal. Oh, yeah, you're, you're so right. It does drive a huge amount of innovation. And we're seeing now here the ability tomato growers um, that are producing tomatoes are able to make all of their packaging out of the tomato vine. So you create a totally circular economy. So the cardboard packaging is made out of the vine and the film that goes over the top of it is made out of the vine. And the good thing about that is when you throw it away, the whole thing biodegrades. We're seeing a lot of progress being made in natural fibers, um, the opportunities of growing milkweed, um, producing biodegradable latex, um, focusing on sheep's wool to make tree guards. We've in the UK often, and I'm sure you have got plastic tree guards that are just left lying around forever, totally unsustainable, not biodegradable. And sheep's wool, of course, fantastic at going back into the soil and providing nutrient and it biodegrades as well. So we're seeing enormous changes in, in innovation that are driving these, these new outcomes. And I think we're only just touching the sides of it at the moment. I think the opportunities are enormous. We've got to make sure that the value of all of these things goes back to the farm gate. I think as farmers, we've always been very good at, at creating these massive opportunities at lowering food prices. And then, of course, we see decrease decreased value going back to the farm gate, we've got to make sure that the value gets back to the farmer with all of these new opportunities. And we've also seen with methane reduction, we've seen enormous benefit with feed additives, with feeding microalgae and things like that to dairy cows, lowering methane, but keeping the same amount of milk yield. Again, taking protein that's being fed down, but with the right feed additives, keeping the milk yield the same. So we see it as, as an exciting time and, and real opportunity to influence globally as well. I guess where there's a will, there's a way, isn't there? 
Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Uh, Manette, in an interview that you did for the BBC's Desert Island Disc series, and by the way, we recommend giving that a listen. Just Google BBC Desert Island Discs. It's uh, it's mentioned in the interview with you that while seventy percent of British land is agricultural, many British citizens kind of feel estranged from the people who grow and produce their food. Does that mean there's a need to improve that relationship in some way? And and how would you do it? There is a real need to produce to to increase, I guess, the relationship between um, producers of food and and the people that consume it. And I think in the UK, we've seen a lot of people leaving the land and going into cities, into urban areas. And that has created many challenges. You know, we used to, in the summer holidays, which were long, that used to be so that people could go out and and do the harvest and pick the fruit. And we drove everybody effectively into the cities to upskill, to go to university, to go away from those jobs. And of course, then became very reliant on a workforce that has to come in here. So in all of that, we've, we've created more and more disconnect from the land and from the food that's produced. So this is why we continue to talk so much about food rather than farming. We held a, a big campaign last year, which had the sort of best chefs in the country. We had Jamie Oliver, who'd be known to many Uh, We had Raymond Blanc and others who were all talking about provenance, about the need to buy British, to buy local. And that was really successful. So I think we need to be doing, as a solution to all of this, much more of that, really building the connection between provenance and health. I think we, we tend to talk about food and we forget that actually we are what we eat. And COVID, of course, I think has really brought home to so many of us the importance of a healthy, balanced diet of getting back wherever possible to eating whole foods, possibly less processed foods, but eating whole foods with all the nutrient value that we need in them. You mentioned COVID. Uh, In what big and important ways has the coronavirus pandemic impacted agriculture and food production in uh, the UK? So COVID has been just a massive, massive game changer. And what happened was... 50% 50% of our market, our food market, is, is retail, where people you know, go in, buy their food, come home and, and cook it. But 50% of our market was out of home. So sort of food to go, restaurants, hotels, hospitality, big sporting events, that would be a big part of the market. And of course, when we hit lockdown in March last year, that market just stopped overnight. All our garden centers were shut. So for the growers that rely on Easter as a massive part of what the season is growing for, people plant their gardens up. But at Easter, they lost all of those opportunities. So we saw some sectors really completely obliterated. And the big challenge I think we faced as farmers was the fact that we couldn't furlough in this country. We've been furloughing our workers, so paying for people to be out of work. Um, and, you know, big business has been able to lock its doors and leave them. You know, we had perishable supply chains, couldn't furlough our cows, couldn't furlough our workers. And there were big losses. But it's incredible how things have changed. And now people are buying out of retail very much how they would have eaten out of home. So it is almost balancing out. And, and prices at the moment here across most sectors are holding up. Whereas in the beginning, we just saw enormous turbulence. We saw people panic buying. So we saw a lot of empty shelves. 
And that created more panic. So every time we've gone into a bit of a lockdown, um, then you've seen people panic buying. And of course, that is, is disastrous because the moment that starts, then people just panic more. So it's settled down a lot, but I think there's been a lot of lessons learned on the back of COVID and, and not least that, you know, we shouldn't take our food or our farmers for granted. What about disruption at the border due to COVID-19 restrictions? Does that remain a concern? It's created quite a lot of concerns and quite a lot of um, challenges with, with Europe because we work on on a sort of just-in-time sourcing. You know, trucks come in here, they're loaded up and they go back out again. And there is, as I said at the beginning, there is friction there. So that's not working quite as well. And, you know, when we get problems at the border and we're seeing now restrictions on, on people traveling in, um, that side of it seems to be working okay. But I, I think it, it just depends how things go um, as far as goods go and, and imports go. And it, it just depends really what happens. I mean, there are, there are problems, but they are not nearly as bad as, as they were. And uh, hopefully things can you know, return to a level of normality. We're seeing now the vaccination program getting rolled out. And I hope by the summer that we can have a, a sort of new normal that has returned. More than a million people signed a petition that demanded assurances that British standards will not be undercut in any future trade deals. What's the larger story behind this outpouring of sentiment? What is the message? Uh, this is a, a difficult one, really. Um, we've had to, as farmers, all of us, produce to very high standards of, of regulation, whether that's animal welfare, whether that's environmental protection or food safety. And um, this is very, very different in America where you have huge differences. You know, in California, you probably have higher standards than you have in many parts of Europe. But in the UK, that is a smaller country, the laws on how we produce our food are, are very strict. And so we've driven these high standards of animal welfare, which limits, you know, how many birds, say, you can keep in a shed, dictates that you have to have windows in that shed, uh, dictates that you have to have high biosecurity measures in place. And so our line was, you know, in trade, we're absolutely up for trading with the rest of the world, but we've got to try and have a common approach here that is basically fair, you know, is fair to farmers in other countries unfair to farmers here. So that was the whole reasoning behind it, because, of course, we had in the run-up to Brexit a lot of um, politicians saying the big plus of Brexit is we're going to get cheaper food. And our line was, actually, that job has been done. You know, we are very close to the US. I think it's the US first, Singapore second, and the UK third in affordability of food. So... I think for all of us as farmers, whether we farm in the U.S. or here or indeed in Europe as well, you know, we want to make sure that farmers stay in business and that we have a fair approach to trade. And trade is a good thing for farmers across the world. And, you know, I'm a trustee of Farm Africa and very keen to help African farmers trade. So we want to be trading tariff free without a doubt. But we want to try and have a common and fair approach to how we're trading. And that really is what the petition was about. It was just really saying, do not undercut our farmers by 
tying their hands to the highest rung of the ladder and allowing imports in that don't even meet the bottom rung of the ladder, which would just put our farmers out of business. That that was really the driver behind that petition. And as I say, we had a million people. And so that was really just one in 60 people in this country mm-hmm. saying that was what they wanted to see. So it was, it was one of the largest petitions ever, and it was really powerful. Well, Minette, you are quoted in an article for Southwest Farmer as saying the new year sees the government implement its own agriculture policy for the first time in 70 years. It will see a seismic shift in the way farming is supported with renewed focus on sustainable farming. So I have a couple of questions around that. First of all, tell us about that shift in support. So uh, this is very, very different um, to what we had before. Before, under... European policy, the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, was very much focused on an area-based payment, on a land-based payment. And that was really to keep food affordable, to make sure that, you know, there was an investment in food production that stopped us seeing price spikes. Now, the future view is very much to invest in the environment and it's called the public monies for public goods. So not investing in food production, but investing in environmental delivery. And this is a, a global first. You know, agricultural bills don't come along every day of the week. This is, as you say, the second one in 70 years. And it is really important that we get it right. Now, we've got very little detail on the table at the moment, but our focus has been developing what sustainable farming can look like and making sure that the investment is actually tied to food production as well for what the market isn't paying for. So this is a very unusual and a time of enormous change for farmers over here because, you know, in living memory, they haven't seen this approach. And and it's a global first. I don't believe there's any other country in the world that has done what we are embarking on. So it'll be interesting to see how it how it works out, but we set an ambition with our net zero approach, and we we really do want to be world leaders in climate friendly farming. Well, in, in your mind, what does sustainable farming look like? Well, what we wanted to do was very much focus in the field into the soils. So before, it's been very much focusing on trees and hedges around the edges of fields, or just being paid to have land. And our proposal is very much actually saying, no, you know, we've got to look at right into the business, right into the soils. A lot of farmers here now really recognizing that soil health is so important. Um, And there are many different things that are needed in all of this. But I'd sort of pick out, uh, you know, one area in particular, which has been around lowering our use of antibiotics and animal medicines. Um, to deal with antimicrobial resistance. And that's been enormously successful. And we've done that by driving um, better awareness in farmers, more responsible use of antibiotics, but also improving um, genetics and improving health status. So if you have a healthier animal, you need less antibiotics for it. And that, of course, is all very much part of delivering on sustainable farming that decreases the food production footprint. So for us, it's it's about really getting into the business of farming and producing food and the policies that we need rather than just focusing on 
paying people, which our government was very clear, it was not just going to pay people to produce food. They wanted to know exactly what that return on the investment looks like. And we've got a massive driver here of environmentalists who believe money should be spent on the environment. So we, we really wanted to create this, this shared synergy, producing food, caring for the environment and doing more for biodiversity at the same time. Well, Manette Batters, I'm very curious about you and, and your work and your excitement around it. What gets you up and ready for another day? Well, representing 47,000 farming businesses means that you're, you're, you're always on your toes. And it's such a time of change over here now. It's really hard to put it into words as to how different this road that we're on is. So I feel enormous responsibility, I guess, for what I would call setting the foundations of the future and, and getting them right um, so that, that my sector, that farming, can, can really have a thriving, profitable future. So that, I guess, gets me up every morning. I also have two teenage children <laughs> who I have to say I can spend forever trying to get them up. So that keeps me on my toes as well. And of course, I have my farming business and I make sure that we have obviously the beef herd here and I do all the feeding and all the stock work at the weekend so that, that I get my hands dirty and I keep my feet well and truly on the ground. So it's a whole mix of things at the moment. And I'm normally traveling a lot all around the UK. And of course, like many people, you know, I've been, I've been at home, which has had you know, a lot of pluses to it, but you're not in front of the farmers that you represent. So I'm looking forward, hopefully, this spring, this summer, getting back out on the road again too. Minette Batters, President of the National Farmers Union of England and Wales, with us from her farm in Wiltshire. Thanks so much, Minette. Thank you so much. Next in our series, Alltech President and CEO Mark Lyons. Join us for the rest of this series as we reflect on how the agriculture industry adapted in 2020 and speak with experts on what's in store for agri-food in 2021. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.